This is Inside the Writer's Head with Danny McLean, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton Counties Writer in Residence for 2020. The Library Foundation's Writer in Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Welcome to Inside the Writer's Head. On this podcast, you can expect conversations with writers and other lovers of books, journalism, libraries, and the literary arts. Our guest today is poet and professor Felicia Zamora. Her books include I Always Carry My Bones, winner of the Iowa Poetry Prize from the University of Iowa Press, Quotient, which is forthcoming in 2022 from Tinderbox Editions, Body of Render, which was winner of the Benjamin Saltman Award from Red Hen Press in 2020, and of Form and Gather, winner of the Andres Montoya Poetry Prize from the University of Notre Dame Press. A Canto Mundo and Ragdale Foundation Fellow, Felicia won the 2020 C.P. Cavafy Prize from Poetry International, the Wabash Prize for Poetry, and the Tomas Salomon Prize. Her poems appear in American Poetry Review, Boston Review, Guernica, Orion, Poetry Magazine, The Nation, and others. She is an assistant professor of poetry at the University of Cincinnati and associate poetry editor for the Colorado Review. Welcome, Felicia. I'm so mm-hmm. glad to be speaking with you today. Thanks, Danny. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. So, you know, just recently on this podcast, I had on a poet um, named Tisha Murray, who talked about how hard it is to make a living as a poet. Um, and you are a professional poet. And I, and I wonder if you would just tell us a bit about how you came to um, be making a living doing this important work. Yeah, well, well, I agree to be an outright artist and to be a writer and to have that be your only source of income is downright difficult. Um, I know for me personally, I've had this very circuitous route to be doing the things that I want to do, including writing and teaching. I feel very fortunate that my trajectory has always been one working toward being a tenure track faculty member, but it's taken me 22 years to get here. And largely, you know, I've been writing um, pretty consistent since I graduated from my MFA program in 2012. But and even before that, I was writing, but it took me a long time to really admit that I was a a poet. Um, I I came from a pretty low socioeconomic background from a single parent mother with three kids growing up in a motel in the middle of Iowa. And, you know, we were three brown kids who really didn't have a lot of support in the white spaces that we were in when we were young. And I didn't know the arts could be for me. Like, like, you know, poor brown kids didn't have the option of, oh, you get to be a poet. Um, It was, oh, I have to do something that can help support my family, or I can, I have to do something that is seen in, you know, quote unquote, society's eyes, that which is, um, deemed successful, which is, you know, there, there's an inherent, um, you know, white supremacy and white oppression. I think that is, it goes with that for, for um, people of color, for me, me specifically, even in my writing, I've had to sort of work toward unlearning whiteness 
um, from what I was taught in both my undergrad and in my graduate studies. But all of this is to say is that I, I didn't know I could be an artist. It took me actually a really long time before I figured that out. And I always knew that I loved higher education. Um, there was only one stint out of my undergrad where I was working for a nonprofit organization and then was asked to come back to work for Iowa State University as a recruiter. And then eventually I took on the position of being their multicultural recruiter. And that was it. I, I, it was sort of a done deal. I knew I wanted to work with students. I, I, <laughs> I, I knew that for me, um, being in higher education was, was absolutely it. And, and I feel fortunate because of that, because I knew that I wanted to teach and write it felt like I knew where I was going, what the horizon looked like. If I only had wanted to write, that would have been a, a much harder decision because trying to find um, the way to keep a, you know, yourself as a writer financially stable and financially afloat is, is so difficult um, that for me, teaching and writing go together hand in hand. It's like being an editor as well. I feel like it's a, it's a trifecta, right? That I can, I'm a better writer because I'm an editor. I'm a better editor because I'm an educator. I'm a better educator because I'm a writer kind of thing. Yeah. I'm really interested in what you said about this process of unlearning whiteness in your, Mm -hmm. um, in your evolution as an artist. And can you, how has your work changed as you've lived through that process of unlearning as you said unlearning whiteness that's such a great question and thank you for asking it um I did not have a faculty of color my entire time in my undergrad and my graduate studies and this is not an uncommon sharing right Right. this is this happens to be the experience that many of us have um, especially as writers and as artists And I realized that I was learning, right? I was learning a lot about poetry. I was learning a lot about creative writing, about who I was and and about my voice. But that first manuscript that I created for for my thesis for um, the MFA program, it's the only manuscript of mine that hasn't been published. And it's largely because I have a hard time looking at it. Mm -hmm. It came from a time where I hadn't truly done the work yet to find myself and to be a brown woman in the spaces that I'd been inhabiting. I mean, I had, you know, I'd done a lot of social justice work through my, through my work at Iowa State University and Colorado State University. But what I found is I hadn't done it in my writing Mm. because I was still finding myself and, and being able to admit that I was an artist, you know, it, It was in my undergraduate program that I I started taking English classes and creative writing classes, even though it took me forever to declare the minor because I was, I was, I started pre-medicine, right? Like, because, you know, as a young individual, I, I thought being a doctor or being a lawyer Mm -hmm. (laughs) is what success looks like. I had no, I I had no idea. I grew up in in a small town of 800 people and in many ways I was sheltered, but I had an imagination that was beyond the boundaries and the limits of where I was growing up. And that became evidently clear um, just in the way that I navigated space in the world. So when I went off to undergrad, 
I remember reading Joy Harjo's She Had Some Horses. And I was blown away at the mm. fact that women of color could write. Women of color could be poets. Women mm. of color could have their voices heard. And I felt so empowered. Um, and then later read Philip Levine's What Work Is in my undergrad as well, and saw, you know, factory workers. You know, my mom worked in a factory for 13 years. And that was, that was me, you know, these, these two books, I saw myself for the first time and thought, wow, you know, maybe this is something that I could do or could be. Mm. And, you know, to go back to the unlearning whiteness, I, in my undergrad, chose to only do a minor in English because it allowed me to skip around, to take uh, Native American literature, to take African American literature, to not have to study certain certain voices, you know, historically dominant narrative voices. And so by the time I got to my undergrad, or by the time I left undergrad and got to the MFA, which was had a five-year gap, you know, I was doing a lot of social justice work in my career in higher education, which was staff positions and, you know, being an academic advisor and doing mentoring programming for uh, students of color and for first-generation students. But the M in the MFA, I, you know, I didn't have a mentor of color. I didn't, I, yes, some of the professors were bringing in um, authors of color, but not as much. And I realized that I was learning something that felt very disingenuous to my authenticity of who I was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, it, and it took me a while. I feel like after I graduated from the MFA, that's when the real work happened. You know, that's when I started to hone my voice, the voice that was going against the grain um, of what I had been taught and what I had seen. Um, it was no longer a mimicry. It was a pushing forward and choosing what authors I wanted to read. You know, other poets of color, other Latinx individuals mm -hmm. became really important to me. Women of color. Mm -hmm. mm, that's so interesting. It makes me think a bit about my experience. In, I went to journalism school probably yeah. about six years after I graduated um, undergrad and you know, I think I look back on, it was only a year long program, um, but I look back on that period and there are some similarities, you know, not, not many faculty of color and um, not a lot of opportunities for mentorship um, with people who were doing the kind of journalism that I was interested in, which would have been, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't want to cover Wall Street. I didn't want to, <laughs> You know, I, I was interested in covering movements um, and there wasn't a lot of guidance around that. But I look back on that period as a time when I learned kind of the fundamentals and the technical side of what I wanted to do. And yeah. then, of course, had to go from there and, and learn a lot um, just out in the professional world and on my own. And also just through personal self-development, which I think is part of what you're saying. It's also just yeah. getting to know yourself getting to understand and accept really what you are setting out to do. Um, well, and it's almost like learning those tools and techniques and the skills of poetry, even that is riddled, right? Mm. With, um, with white supremacy and this idea that what, what are the tools and the skills who, who, who made those decisions? Mm -hmm. And 
I think the reality is I learned them in order to figure out how to break them. Um, I learned them to, to realize that when I take up space, whether it's the physicality of my body or if it's the physicality of my words on the page, it means something very different than if Hemingway was writing something, you know, or another, another white dominant narrative, cisgender heterosexual male, right? Um, and I wanted to own that more. I, I, writing was a space that took me a while and, and I think it's just because I always felt, I felt behind with it. Um, I didn't start the program, you know, I didn't start really um, seeing myself as a poet until, you know, mid to late twenties and didn't graduate from an MFA program until my thirties. And so well, I think what that also did is when I did graduate, when I said that's where the real work happened, I mean, from 2012 until now, which is almost 10 years, I mean, I've written eight manuscripts and it, it's because I, I'm not here to mess around. Right. <laughs> like um, I, I, I want a poetical existence, which means for me as a woman of color to really push on the boundaries of where we are at societally to bring up hard questions, to look at poetry as activism, um, and to, to really rethink, you know, what can I do and what can my art do? Uh, and how does it um, resonate into a larger conversation? I wonder if you could talk more about this idea of poetry as activism, or maybe even art more broadly as activism. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, I would think that that's um, maybe a controversial idea um, uh, from the perspective of, well, I mean, culture, changing culture, changing narrative, I think we can, um, you know, is, is generally seen as part of a political project. Yes. But some might question whether the art itself is, is activism or, or, does that mean that art is an organizing tool necessarily, or that mm. it's a, um, that it's like a call to action? Just say more, if you wouldn't mind saying more about this idea of your poetry as activism. Yeah, and I, I'm so glad that you bring that up, Danny, because what I have, I'm actually working on a conversation series, a new conversation series through the University of Cincinnati that poses this idea of art as activism, poetry as radicalization and liberation for BIPOC and marginalized people. And what I'm curious about is this, this sort of gap of the artist unwilling to call themselves an activist, even though the work that they're doing and the art itself is deeply rooted in the ideas of social change and movement. And um, the, I love that idea of the call to action that you just said. For me, I really do believe that poetry, once it gets on the page, it, it does become beyond us. It becomes that which is coming from creator, it's tethered to us from the authorial presence from which we bring it forward. But it is a living, breathing piece of art that has a longevity beyond us as creator. And because we as writers put something out into the world, we actually don't know what routes and trajectories that art will take. We don't know who will one day be in a bookstore, pick up our book, flip to a page, read a poem, and then all of a sudden something synapses in their mind and they decide to change their ideation, 
to change their habits and how that might become contagious. Mm. And I speak to this with my students all the time is that sometimes the art itself and we as creator of the art, it is what we are meant to be giving to the conversation, to the fight toward human justice, to the fight toward social equity. Um, it is not, you know, it is not, is it the same as someone holding um, signs um, with fists in the air in the streets? No, it's not the same thing, but it doesn't, it, it's, it's not an and or or sort of situation, mm -hmm. it's both. It's both to really change the way that the world, the way that the world acts and reacts right now. We have to come at it from all sides in order to make real change where there is liberation for brown and black and queer and trans individuals, for people with disabilities. We, we, we gotta be relentless in all directions. And art is a really powerful way to do that. I mean, think of, I, I always think of, you know, Deschamps. I think, I think of Deschamps urinal. Put a damn urinal in, in, in a museum, right? <laughs> and the, and the, uh, the upheaval and also the thinking that it caused. Mm -hmm. And we too do this. I mean, I think of Claudia Rankin's Citizen. You, you put a book so powerful, so accessible, and yet so complex. Mm -hmm. It has to be accessible due to the complexity of talking about race in this country, which is absolutely something that this country it still is hesitant to do. And because of that, we're all suffering. We have to be able to say it, lay it out there, and have in-depth, meaningful conversations instead of this sort of polarized um, you know, white, white guilt coming in, shutting, shutting conversations down, feeling guilty, feeling despair. It's not helpful. Mm. And we, we have to move past that. And so for me, I feel like our art is such a catalyst to do these things because sometimes we create worlds that are doing more than we can even understand as artists. It's that, it's that ineffable process of creation where, yes, a lot of it is intentionality, but a lot of it also is trusting that process, that what comes to the page is a world that needs to be there. And sometimes it takes us on a journey as well, you know, artists included. I'm so curious about the journey that you've been on for the past couple of years, the past 18 months during, during mm -hmm. this pandemic you will have published three books um, since the beginning of the pandemic, right? Yes. I always carry my bones, quotient and body of render. Tell, just talk a bit about your process um, of publishing these books during this time. How, how has that been for you? Well, you know, I, I mean, part of me is like, internally giggling because it feels like a silly thing to do, right? To, to publish three, three books during such a time of turmoil. But at the same time, the way that I think about it is that I really want these books to live. And I'm really hoping the longevity of their presence in the poetry world will, will be that beyond the blip of a moment, beyond the blip of a year. I mean, I have had editors say that the first six months of a book especially a book of poems is the most important because it can be easily forgotten about after that point in time. But I've also been receiving really good news that feels like 
the books are still kind of holding their own um, even after the year mark. Uh, and especially with Body of Renders when I was thinking about specifically, which came out through Red Hen Press in April, 2020. And the press has been really great. To, they were great to work with and kind of kept me up to speed about what the sales of the book look like. Although I'll be honest, I am just a, a, a terrible marketer of my own books. Um, I am in love with the process of writing the book, um, of compiling the book, of the, the love of the sometimes grief that comes with the potential rewounding of going into very risky and vulnerable uh, discussions with myself, my lineage, my ancestry, um, and my place and space in the social spheres right now. Um, you know, bringing the private and the public together. Um, you know, there's, there, there can be a lot with that. But that's really where I feel like I'm, I'm doing the work. And then, and then you, we start the whole sort of business, what it feels like of publishing, where you, you're trying to put it in the hands of a publisher. And probably one, I mean, maybe not one, maybe not one of a few, but probably quite a few poets out there who I have six books from six different publishers. Mm. That was not the original intent. Um, it's just the way that my writing has ended up. And for me, I, I like to embrace that and think, okay, so I get to work with all of these different presses. I get to sort of see the internal workings of what it's like to have uh, various boutique presses versus small presses. Um, and each has their own ebbs and rhythms and flows. And um, it's been kind of fun to get to know that. But to come back to the question is, you know, I don't know if these books will just be um, forgotten about. And honestly, I don't think that's something that I can really dwell in mm. because they're out there. And that for me feels like the absolute most important thing of having someone daringly look at my art and say, this is worth putting into the world. Because I always tell artists of varying, uh, varying levels that it's really important that we believe in our art because no one's gonna do it for us. We have to know when it's ready to see the eyes of the world. Um, and you don't have to love it. You don't have to love. Oh, that's interesting. No, you just have to know it's done. Um, I know it's, it's such a strange concept, but I think, I think we as individual artists are sometimes really bad at knowing which pieces of ours are going to impact or speak to someone else. And, and so we just have to be able to trust that what we're putting out there is ready for people to see. Um, an example I always give undergraduate students is that when I'm creating like packets of poems to submit to a journal, you know, usually you submit like five poems. Um, and out of the five poems, I will take three that I just adore, right? And then two that are ready, but I don't particularly like them. And those two are picked up before the three every single really? time. Really? <laughs> time. I just, I don't know if it's, I can't look at my own art that way. Um, which I find really, and I, I find really, really fascinating. Um, and I, I should probably do some studying with that. So, but believing that your work is ready, um, you know, I can't be more elated that these three books are, are going to be living. You know, um, Body of Under came out in 2020. 
I Always Care My Bones came out in 2021, and then uh, Quotient will be coming out from Tinderbox. And all of them have a lot of meaning for me. And they're all out of order as well. Like Quotient is my sixth book being published and it was the second manuscript I ever wrote. So well before the pandemic, right? So this isn't necessarily the product of your creativity during this stretch of time. Yeah, that's correct. Where I always carry my bones was being finished um, just as the pandemic was beginning to start. And then this new manuscript that I'm um, headed off to a writer's residency in a, in a couple of days, actually, um, in Oregon, that's the manuscript that I'm trying to finish. And it is my, it's the only manuscript that was written fully during the pandemic. Mm. And I, and I didn't start it. Um, gosh, I didn't start it until months in August of 2020 is when I started the manuscript because I just, it just couldn't for the first, um, let's see, what was it? March, April, May, June, July. Um, it really felt like survival and mental health became the top priorities. During that time, my partner and I also moved across the country. We moved from Phoenix to Cincinnati for me to take the position at the University of Cincinnati. And that was wild to to move across the country when the pandemic was just starting in, in May of 2020, mm. um, when lockdowns had taken place and, and everyone was trying to shelter in place. And here I was with my dogs in a car <laughs> going from hotel room to mm. hotel room in the three-day journey. Um, yeah, I mean, I think for me, so much happened there's so much grief I think we have as, uh, as a society in our communities, like the, the black and brown communities, we, we don't actually know how impacted we have been from the pandemic because we're still in it. I think yeah. sometimes we forget like we're still in it. Right. And it's probably we're gonna be in it for a while and we don't know what this is gonna look like. Um, and so there were things that were really hard, that were difficult. And then I think that there were things that were, were very joyful. And for me, these books were, were joy. Mm. You know, it, it was joy to have my writing come out into the world, even during difficult times. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't take that back. Yeah. Congratulations on those publications. That's Thank great. you. Um, you mentioned the writing residency that you're headed into, and I'd love to talk about that. I've never been on, um, never gone away and taken that time to just focus on writing. It's something that I really like to do uh, soon. Mm. So tell me how you plan to use this upcoming time away. You mentioned that it's to finish a manuscript. And I yeah. know that this isn't your first residency or writing retreat. So I'm curious in general, how, how you tend to use this time. And how do you know that it's time for one? You know, how do you know it's time to apply to one? Um, what is that? How, how do these residencies fit into your practice? So for me, um, the writer writing residencies have been something that was relatively new to me after I graduated from the MFA program. And largely, you know, so within the last 10 years is really when this has all been happening for me. You know, the 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 seven manuscripts being written and residencies taken all, all after 
I left sort of the, the, the institution of being in school. And I say that only because um, there are many individuals who are in MFA programs and MA programs and, and even just out of their undergrads who are, who are taking advantage of these residencies. And that's exactly what it, which should happen. Um, I think for me, because I didn't have great mentorship, um, you know, like I said, I didn't have uh, people of color at the time who were supporting me. Um, I, you know, I did the very first generation sort of thing of, of not knowing what I needed to know and over time researching it. And I did my first residency in 2012, which was one that I found myself at, um, at Martha's Vineyard. And it was there that I was with six other women um, at uh, the Naopi Writers Center, which actually doesn't exist anymore. So this writer's residency isn't there. And it was a beautiful time. Like, so quotient the book that's coming out. I, I wrote three-fourths of that book while there for three weeks. It was just the first time I'd ever felt this intensive to meditate and write and read. And that was the entire point of me being there. I tried not to do any work. I, you know, I talked to my family and my partner um, while I was there, but I was there to write. And I had never understood the value of it until I was there. <laughs> and then being there with six other writers was also wonderful because there were times when we would make dinner together, we would go for walks together. And, and I'm pretty introverted, which is, um, which is kind of funny because people think that I'm not, but it's all about where your energy comes from. And mm -hmm. I'm very introverted. And it took me a few days, you know, out of the residency, it took me almost four or five days before I was even interacting with the other artists. And it's largely because um, I think I'd been working so much and I just needed some downtime. And then everything just started to click. So the upcoming residency will be my, actually, it's only my third. And then I have a fourth one that I'm doing um, at Ragdale because I'll be a fellow at Ragdale in Chicago um, in May 2020, 2022 as well. So this, this residency, I'm trying to finish up my manuscript that I started in August of 2020. That's, a, that's usually my time frame for poetry manuscripts is, is I really have this energy, this thinking that's been coming about, my obsessions come out for about a year to a year and a half. And I try to harness that energy knowing that I have got to fit it in in this time frame. Otherwise I will lose my momentum, mm -hmm. my thought processes. Now, everybody is so different in their own process of how they write. But for me, I like to really shorten it with poetry manuscripts because I don't think I can stay in that headspace for longer than about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And so this is coming up on a year and a half. Um, I know that the book is basically done. I need to put it together. I need to um, see if there's any gaps and potentially add some new pieces while there. This is a shorter one. So it's only um, the playa in Oregon is about five days. And so, and with no internet, <laughs> or they have very little internet, which will be, which will be interesting. Um, and I plan to write, like the reason to be there is to write. Um, another one that I did in, uh, in Ireland, uh, at, for the moth magazine, mm -hmm. I was there for 
two weeks. And that was, again, this very intensive, um, a huge section of I Always Carry My Bones was written there. I would say almost, gosh, almost half the poems were written during that two week period. And so bringing, bringing important books, um, mm -hmm. making sure that that space is kept for writing versus, um, you know, it's so easy to wanna do all these other things. And knowing for me, it's either, does a project need to end? Does the project need a robust middle time to work or is the project getting started? Those are three areas for me where I feel that's when a writing residency becomes extremely helpful. Hmm. It's a push for me in those three spots. You just mentioned bringing important books. You mean the books that are you packing now for, for your time away and thinking about what to take with you? Yeah. Well, what are you, what are the books that you're taking with you? And it connects to um, a question that I always ask guests on the podcast, which is what are you reading these days? Oh, yes. Um, let's see. So I'm trying to think like off the cuff because I just ordered a bunch of books that have not yet arrived here. Um, I wanted to bring with me, I had read sections of it, but not the entire book, um, a, a becoming human. Um, I gosh, I should probably look this up really quick here. Sure. Um, it's by Zakia Amon Jackson. Oh, okay. I have a dear friend, um, Shaiko Omawale, who's a filmmaker in Los Angeles, who has been telling me a lot about that person's work. I have not read oh, it yet. Yes. And I actually received um, their information from another poet who I had interviewed for the um, Poetry as Activism or series, who actually had studied with Professor Iman Jackson. And so, oh, it's Becoming Human, Matter and Meaning in an Anti-Black World. And I had read some of it and I just want to dive back into the second half of it because mm -hmm it got me thinking so much that I would, I would read like 15 pages and would have tons of notes on it. And then I would start writing. Mm -hmm. And so, <laughs> and so mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure that that book is one. Um, I have some poetry books that are on the way as well. Um, I'm trying to think I'm so immersed in the books that I'm teaching this mm -hmm. semester mm -hmm. that I'm, that's sort of where my brain is at. Um, because I will probably bring about oh, five to 10 books of poems within the five days that I would like to get through. For mm -hmm. me personally, I like to, I like to read texts that are kind of influential to my thinking, which are some, you know, some theory, but then I also like to make sure that I'm reading, you know, kind of fresh off the press contemporary poetry that just came out to really feel what's out there and who I'm in conversation mm -hmm. with. Because I, I do feel that the books and the writing that we produce is, is this conversation over time and space with other authors. That whether we know it or not, we're writing in a time and a moment that is not singular. And I think that's perhaps why community feels extremely important to me, um, especially in the last 10 years, you know, I've been out searching for community um, you know, everything from being a, a Cantamundo fellow, which was extremely important to me to, um, to connect with other Latinx individuals around the country and around the world, which has, has given me a network um, that was almost unbelievable. 
each of the books that I've um, written, you know, I get to know people from the press, but also other authors who are being published from the press. And the world becomes really small when you open yourself up to, to meeting other people um, and to also looking to say, who's around me? Mm-hmm. Whether it be from a press, whether it be from fellowships, community is something that I lacked for a really long time, mm-hmm. a really long time. And, it, it, and it's become priority especially the older I get, I think. I so appreciate you just saying that. Um, It's, I mean, it's certainly just true in my experience. It's nice to, you know, I wrote a book about mothering and parenting and it's really lovely to look at the books about family and parenting that have come out in recent years um, from, you know, people like, Trina Green Brown and Imani Perry and um, so many writers who have just shifted the conversation, you know, around family. And it's, it's been, it's been really exciting um, to be a part of that. And I think it's not something that we don't really acknowledge enough. So thank you for just kind of honoring the importance of writing into a conversation that exists well beyond us, right. As individual authors and become something much bigger. Well, and you never, you never know how, when you read something from someone who you admire, you may actually interact with them later on or find, find yourself communicating with them in, in real time, <laughs> you know, virtually yeah. or, or right, whatever. Right. I mean, I know um, a funny story is that someone who I very much admire and I see, you know, I see her as a friend is uh, Shayla Seabree, who works at Bucknell and who is the, I believe, director of the Stadler Center. And a funny story is that, you know, we've only met a couple times in person and very briefly. However, when I was first submitting to West Branch, uh, Shayla was a Stadler fellow, um, and was reading for West Branch on the back end. I, you know, I, I, had seen her name, but had never met her before. And, you know, kept, I kept getting rejection after rejection. And it was like, this is the way it goes, right? You know, it's, it's like publishing. And then one day Shayla reached out to me and said that she was leading a conversation. Gosh, this was years, years ago, conversation on women in the avant-garde. And she had admired my work, even though West Branch had not published anything. Mm-hmm. She had admired my work the entire time. And because she was leading up the initiative, she asked if I would submit poems for her. And, and of course I did. And she selected them. And, and years later, um, her first book, Mistress, came out, which is just a fin- an absolute fantastic book of poems. It, w- it was up for an NAACP Image Award. And then um, she read with me at the launch of I Always Carry My Bones. Um, and her newest book, Field Study, has come out. And I was teaching that to the PhD poetry workshop this, this semester. And it's just an amazing book. <laughs> came out, I, th- I think, through FSG. And it just goes to show you, like, it is a small community. Creative writing and poetry is even smaller. You know, I mean, I would assume that journalism is the same way, as well as when you start writing nonfiction and memoir as well, that it, it really gives me hope and excitement of 
like who I might interact with and who I might become in community with. Um, Cause I just feel like there's so many people doing such generous things. Mm-hmm. And, and if I have any ability to, to promote other authors, it's, it's going to be marginalized voices. It's going to be Brown and black and trans and queer authors with disabilities who, who I want to help pull into the limelight because we have to be there for each other. It's another way of dismantling, right? It's another way of, of building our voices through our voices to change the systems from the inside out. Mm. Felicia, um, this has been such an incredible opportunity to talk with you. And I know that listeners are going to want to hear more from you and learn more about you and read your work. In addition to finding your work at the library or at local bookstores, how can, how can people keep up with you and follow and follow you? Um, well, my website is one way, feliciasmora.com. Um, there's a way to contact me, send me an email, they, um, Googling information about me. Um, I have some new projects at, like I said, the conversation series of poetry as a catalyst for radicalization and liberation for BIPOC and marginalized people um, is on the Elliston Poetry Room website through the University of Cincinnati. And that isn't so much seeing me, but it's seeing my interest through the collective narratives that I'm trying to create from these poets of color who are talking about their own perspectives of of what it means to them to have poetry be a a way for social change to come about in our world. And so, you know, there's there's all sorts of ways um, to, to, to look me up and to contact me. And I'm always happy to hear from individuals because, you know, that's how we come into community. Danny, I feel like we're in community now, which we is are. <laughs> which is so amazing. I'm so honored. I'm so excited. I um, you know, this, you know, I'll share with the listeners that this came about. I tried to invite you to a, a different event and and found that you'll be on your writing retreat at that time. And so that wouldn't work. But what a um what a nice shift in our plans, right? From that, from that particular event to the opportunity just to sit down one-on-one and have this conversation. I so appreciate your time. I'm so glad to be in community, to know that you're here in Cincinnati as um, yet another fantastic writer and, and artist. And I'm just very glad to know you. Thank you, Felicia. Yeah, of course. And, and I would say the shout out to your listeners that if you are looking for some extremely powerful books of poems right now, um, Anthony Cody's Borderland Apocrypha, um, uh, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal's uh, Beast Meridian. Um, I'm looking at DMZ Colony by Don Mi Choi, which also was the winner a few years ago of the National Book Award. Um, Homie by Denez Smith. Um, a book of Essays, History of My Brief Body by Billy Ray, Billy Ray Belcourt. Um, Hyde Erdrich's Little Big, Big Bully is just absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm just, I'm throwing some out there because I'm just thinking of where my mind is. Um, Migratory Sound by Sarah Lupita Olivares. Um, and, oh, of course, Field Study by Shayla Sebri and Tracing the Horse by Diana Marie Delgado. Um, those are some books that have just really floored me and rocked my world. And I hope maybe you'll check some of them out. 
Well, I mean, what better way to end a library podcast than by <laughs> <laughs> listing a whole bunch of fantastic books that hopes, hopefully, hopefully folks will check out. Thank you again, Felicia. This has been a great conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Danny. I hope that you have a wonderful end of your tenure um, as at the library in Cincinnati. They were, they're so very lucky to have had you. And I am, like I said, just feel grateful to have, to be a part of the podcast and to now be in your sphere of knowing. <laughs> thank you. I feel the same. That's it for this episode of Inside the Writer's Head. Keep joining us for in-depth conversations with writers and other lovers of books, journalism, libraries, and the literary arts. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer in Residence program. You can meet Danny at various events throughout the year. Learn more by visiting Cincinnati Library org slash writer in residence. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes and leave us a review. It helps other book lovers find us. Thank you. Thank you.